Well, good evening, everyone. Can I invite you to turn with me to the passage that Alex read a moment or two ago, uh, Revelation chapter 15. As we turn to it, um, well, let me introduce myself as well. Um, if you're new or visiting, you're, you're most welcome. Um, my name is John Torrance, and I'm the assistant minister here in this congregation. And I, I've been tasked this evening with looking at this passage with you. And uh, before we begin, I think we recognize that having read the passage, that it is, is, is no light topic. In fact, it includes um, very difficult uh, material. And so I, uh, I feel like I, I should apologize almost at the very beginning and say if there's something that you don't understand by the very end, or if it's not clear, or if there's something that you're not sure about, then I encourage you to come and speak to me afterwards. I recognize, no one has complained to me about the, the series in Revelation, I think you're enjoying it, but I realize that it is, it is tricky, it's tricky, and it's tricky certainly for Alistair and I as we try and uh, condense these passages in, into one point. And we're balancing sort of trying to do that, and we're balancing trying to explain all the different aspects of Revelation, but also keep it as simple as possible. Uh, and, and so I suppose I want to, to say that we, we've deliberately not covered everything. And the reason for that is, um, you, some of you will know about our adult Bible class, and what we're, we're going to do in November in our adult Bible class is do four weeks dealing with, specifically dealing with the end times. So we're going to look at things like the second coming, the final judgment, uh, the millennium, the resurrection, and living in light of the future, or living in light of the resurrection. And so I encourage you to, to consider coming to that. Uh, you're all welcome. Uh, if you're not in a, a Sunday school class elsewhere, we meet upstairs at Sunday school time, uh, quarter to ten until half ten, and you're more than welcome to do that. The wee term cards are out in the foyer. Well, hopefully you've turned to Revelation 15. And as it is God's word, let us bow our heads together and let us, um, let us pray to him for his help. Almighty God, your word tells us to stop trusting in man who has but a breath in his nostrils. Of what account is he? Well, this evening we're looking at a passage of scripture which tells us what happens to those who trust in man. And we're going to see what account they have as they stand before the most holy, the most, ju- most just, the most awesome God. And we're going to see that one day we will be held to account who we trust in. And so we pray for your Holy Spirit this evening. We thank you for him and we thank you that he is eager to make your word known to us. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that that is, it would be indeed what you do this evening. That you would show us Jesus Christ, and that we would trust and follow him. Amen. Well, you can see there on the screen behind me that I've tried to to summarize this passage into this title, The Day of the Lord. Now, the Day of the Lord, uh, Pauline was advertising this um, conference for biblical theology this morning. And the day of the Lord is a term that you would find in biblical theology. It's a biblically, theologically, uh, uh, theological phrase. And what I mean by that is that it is a phrase that we see throughout Scripture. And it it is a phrase that describes a day or the day of God's judgment. 
And there are many different days of God's, of the Lord throughout Scripture at different times. But in our passage, in these two chapters, or a chapter and a half, we're going to read about the ultimate day of the Lord. The great and final day of the Lord. And so as we come to these verses, we're going to see that this is what is going to happen at the very end of time. And we're going to see that on this day, God is going to deal with all evil and all sin. And it's going to face his wrath. But if you will know, as, uh, if you've been here with us studying Revelation, you'll know that this passage or this, these words are not just here for our information. They're here to encourage us. Particularly if you're a Christian here this evening, these passages here are to give you assurance. And we're going to see how this is assuring to us at the end of our sermon. But the main thing that this shows us is a warning. And it's a warning to those of us who are not yet Christians. It's a warning what is going to happen to us if we persevere in trusting ourselves. Now, to help us navigate this passage, uh, we're, we're going to do something, uh, well, for me, slightly different, slightly different change attack. I'm going to go through the passage and try and explain it, sort of section by section, and then we'll bring it all together at the end and see how it warns us and how it assures us. So hopefully that way you'll be able to digest all this material together. Well, let us begin, therefore, by seeing um, that this is a passage about God's final judgment. I've said that this is a passage about God's final judgment. Well, let's see it together, and let's see it from God's word. And you'll see there on the screen that we see this from chapter 15, verses 5 to 8. And if you have a look down at those verses, um, you will see that the next thing, it talks in the first person, and this is a guy called John, John the Apostle. This is his vision, and this is his book. And the next thing John sees coming out of heaven is seven angels with seven plagues and that to these seven angels is given seven bowls, golden bowls, filled with God's wrath. Now this is a lot of sevens, I recognize that. But hopefully by now if you've been with us in our sort of series on Revelation, you'll know how this book uses seven to describe the last days. Remember, seven is sort of a, it's a, it's a figurative word, meaning complete and entire. And we've seen that, that throughout this book, what have we had? We've had the seven churches, the seven seals, the seven trumpets. And these are descriptions of what happens between Christ's ascension and Christ's return. Well, here we're coming to a new batch of seven. Seven angels, seven plagues, seven bulls. But we're going to see that these, this group of seven is different to the previous seven. Because this group of seven describes the final days of the last days. And you can see this for yourself in in verse 8. Have a look down there and and, and see what it tells us in verse 8. It gives us this picture of the temple being filled with smoke and glory. and And it's basically saying God was there. But then it tells us that no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. 
Now, this is a, a really important detail because this is unlike anything we've seen before in Revelation. Because, you see, as these other sevens have been poured out or if their trumpets blown or letters going out to the churches, in those instances, heaven has remained open. And, and that's because as Christians have died throughout history, they have been able to go to heaven. And if indeed you were to die tonight before Christ returns, that is where you would go in your spirit into heaven. But do you see what verse 8 tells us? That with these bowls, something different is happening. And it's to tell us that these bowls are not being poured out over a prolonged period of time throughout the entirety of the last days, but rather it is telling us that the final days, the day of the Lord, has begun. This is confirmed to us by the contents of the bowls, and we're going to be looking very shortly at what the contents of the bowls are. But as we look at those, we're going to see that that the reach or the effect of these bowls as they're poured out is not limited. Remember, uh, I don't know if you, you remember, um, you can go back and have a look later, but the, the seals um, only covered a quarter of the earth. As they were broken, uh, only a quarter of the earth was judged or, or given over to the consequences of sin. And then the trumpets, similarly, remember, it was only a third of the world that received the warning of God's wrath. And it wasn't sort of a, a literal third or a literal quarter. But remember, we talked about it being limited. But here we see, and we're going to see this in the next couple of, of minutes, that as these bowls are poured out, they are poured out over all the world. Not a quarter, not a third, not a half, but everything. And that's because these verses are no longer a forewarning of God's wrath. They're not a, a, a description of how God's grace has held us back from being given over to our sin. No, this is the final and ultimate outpouring of God's wrath upon his creation. That's the first thing we see. John makes it clear for us, I think, in these few verses. This is, this is God's final judgment. But as we look now at the bowls, we're going to see that it is a devastating judgment and this point, we're going to, you'll see that we're really looking at the remainder of the verses. We're going to go through each of these bowls in turn. And we're going to see that although individually they tell us a little bit about what's going to happen, we're to remember all the time in the back of our minds that seven, seven means entirety. So it's not that there are necessarily seven stages to it or, or seven different things to look out for. But we are going to study what God's word says because it is to help us what is going to happen in the entirety of God's wrath. So let's have a look at the very first bowl. And we'll see there that it is the, the judgment of unbelievers. And we see this in verse 2, which, which tells us that when the first angel went and poured out the bowl on the land, that painful and ugly sores appeared on the people. But no, not just the people. Appeared on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. We, we looked at this in our last section, didn't we? Chapter 13, 12, and 13. We, we saw the dragon, the devil, and his tactics, the beasts. The beasts, that which he used to pull people in to worship him and not worship God. And here, as the first bowl is poured out, we see 
we see that painful and ugly sores appear in these people. In many ways, it's, it, this is a, an idea of the punishment fitting the crime. They had the, the mark of the beast, and now they must have another mark on them. But of course, we know that the, the mark of the beast is not a, a physical mark. And so we must say that these painful and ugly sores are pr- probably not physical either. But they speak of torment, spiritual torment. And like I said, it's important to note there, isn't it, that this bowl is poured out on those who do not have the name of the Lamb written on them. Next, we see the second bowl. Okay, this um, PowerPoint, my apologies, is not working, but I'll tell you what it says. We'll, ha- we'll see there. It's, it's judgment on commerce, and it is judgment on the source of life. And we see this from verses 3 and 4, that the second and third And and you'll see that they're connected because God's wrath is poured out first on the sea and then on the waters. And and the bowls are are emptied upon them. And there's a reflection here, as there is throughout these bowls, a reflection on the the plagues that that happened in Exodus. And so we have, in in verse 3, you'll see there, as the bowl of wrath is poured out in the sea, it turns the sea into blood. Of course, if you know your plagues, you'll you'll recognize that. But because of this reference, it helps us understand what is going on here. And it helps us understand that God's judgment is on the seas. It's the source of our commerce. And on the rivers, which is, of course, a source of fresh water, a source of life and food. And that is what God is judging. There's a connection here as well to to the trumpets, the second and third trumpets mirror what's going on here. They're they're all kind of connected. You have the plagues, the trumpets, and now the bowls. But we can see at the very end of verse 3 how it's different. Every living thing in the sea died. This is not a partial judgment. This is a complete and entire judgment on the whole world. Let's see if my PowerPoint works for the next slide. There we go. Judgment on creation. Verse 8. We see the pouring out of the fourth ball. The sun gains strength. And it is the sun who brings judgment on those living on the world. And I know as we read these verses, it seems quite odd because I imagine if you're anything like me, you'd love to see a little bit more sun in our lives. But, but this is nothing like we could ever imagine. You see, at the minute, if you, you know your sort of physics well, you'll know that the sun is at the sort of perfect distance from the earth and that the whole of creation works in harmony. We have the perfect heat that we need in order for life to thrive and survive in this planet. But that is not what this is talking about. This is talking about the sun not being used to make this world thrive, but to make this world suffer and die Some of you maybe have been burned by the sun and you know how painful it can be to be on the wrong side of it and and to experience its strength. But you see what it says there? It says there that they are seared by the intense heat. Intense heat to scorch people like fire, it talks about. In the day of the Lord, such will be God's vengeance on his creation that he will use creation against itself. And such will be the strength of the sun that we cannot save ourselves from it. It will be a strength that will pierce even the strongest shade. 
a strength which will cause everything to burn like fire. And we have the fifth bowl, which you can read about there. In the next verse, it tells us in verse 10 that it is directed towards the throne of the beast. Again, this is the effect of this is a, another Exodus plague, plague, isn't it? It's darkness. Now, I know that, again, lots of people might read this verse. They might ask themselves, well, where is the throne of the beast? Where is it? Well, that is not what this verse is about. It's not giving us the physical location of God's enemy. Rather, it's giving us this picture of where the strength of the enemy lies. The throne is a picture of strength, isn't it? If something is sitting on a throne, it, it looks strong. And so we need to see that as this bowl is poured out, we're to see that God's judgment is not simply focused on the people of the world or on the, the creation of the world, but it drives right into the heart of Satan and right into his so-called seat of power. Next we have the sixth bowl, which brings about the last battle. And we can read about this in in verses 12 to to 14. And and you'll see there, and it tells us that at the very beginning in, in verse 12, that the great river Euphrates dries up. And the reason it dries up is to enable the enemies of the Lord, these kings, to come from the east. Again, these are sadly some of the verses in Revelation which have caused a lot of intrigue and confusion in the church. Some people believe that these verses are, are describing a, a physical battle that will, that will take place outside of Jerusalem. And the reason that they think that there is because of verse 16, it talks about them gathering the kings together to that place in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Many people think that they can locate Armageddon. They know where it is. But I hope you know the error in reading Revelation literally. I hope you know the error in looking at verses like verse 13 and, and saying, well, well, we need to, to see evil spirits that look like frogs. Because we know, don't we, what's going on here? It's a picture of the Exodus plagues. Of course they look like frogs. We've had darkness. We've had water into blood. And so here we are with frogs. It's not literal. It leads us into great error. But rather, what are we to do? Well, to go back to our biblical theology, that's how we navigate books like Revelation. We ask ourselves, well, what has Euphrates got to do with the Bible? Why is Euphrates such a big deal? Why are kings from the east such a big deal? Well, we know, don't we? We know we don't have to imagine a reason or, or think of something that, that might be. We don't need to look in our newspapers. I think that's what Father Ted does whenever he's thinking about what to write his sermons. He talks about, what does he say? Overheard conversations in newspapers. But we don't need to do that. We can ask ourselves, what does the Bible, how does the Bible help us interpret this passage? And we know that Babylon, as we're going to see in our next chapter, Babylon is this great picture of the enemy of God's people. And it came from the east, didn't it? And it came and it, it brought God's judgment on God's people. And so it is here, the great Euphrates, the great natural barrier, God is going to dry it up. Nothing is going to hinder God's judgment coming upon God's world. There's no physical regime is going to come and challenge God in one last battle. It's not going to happen. There's no, there are not going to be any armies 
rallying around Jerusalem. Rather, they're going to be spiritual enemies. The spiritual people who oppose God are going to gather together for one last rebellious stand. But they're going to see that their efforts are completely in vain. And that's what we see in our last and final bowl, the seventh bowl. And we see this in verses, well, I've written verses 16 to 21. We see, we see there, don't we, that the enemies of God can gather wherever they like. It doesn't matter where they gather. When that last bowl is emptied, it will be finished. Let's read this first because this is really great. This is where assurance comes from, okay? The seventh, seven, verse 17, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done. And we're going to come back to that phrase because obviously it, it's an echo, isn't it, of a phrase we hear elsewhere. An echo where we hear elsewhere where evil is defeated. But I want us to quickly draw our attention to the remaining of this little section because we see what happens after verse 17. We see these, this sort of collection of words and, 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 and physical things that we've become familiar with in Revelation. It talks about there, doesn't it, of flashes of lightning, verse 18, rumblings and peals of thunder and a severe earthquake. We've read these words a number of times, haven't we, throughout our series And the words that we have come to associate with the last day, the final day of judgment. And actually, it's interesting, isn't it? Out of all of these bowls, this is the bowl that is described to us in more detail. Because this is it. This is the great climax. We're told there, aren't we, that the earthquake will be like none other. That it will split the enemy's citadels into pieces. Verse 19. It tells us that in all the chaos that is going on in this day, God will not forget Babylon, his great enemy. And it gives us this great picture of such will be his fury and wrath against those who oppose him, that even islands and mountains will jump up out of their foundations and seek a place to hide. It comes back to the Exodus theme, doesn't it, in verse 21? And it concludes by telling us that for those who oppose God on that great day, that not only will the ground beneath their feet move and jump out and try and run away from them, but great hailstones will pound down from on high. You see the Exodus theme throughout this, the Exodus theme of judgment of God against those who oppose him. But you'll remember the Exodus, won't you? You'd remember how it concludes. It, it concludes or culminates with the death of the firstborn. Well, this is where this is the ultimate judgment. Because this is not just the death of the firstborn, but the death and destruction of all those who oppose God. You see, this is a description of God's final and ultimate judgment. And I hope you have seen as we have whisked through these verses that together, these bowls, this complete outpouring of God's wrath is utterly devastating. That it will cover the entire earth. It will not be limited. Nothing will be spared. 
And it will bring complete and final destruction upon those who oppose the Lord. That is what these verses are about. And I hope you've been able to see that, not just from myself, but I hope you have been able to see that from God's word. But now in the remainder of our time, now that we know that, we've got to ask ourselves, so what? So what? Why is this passage here? Why do we need to read it? Why have I come here and listened to a description of this for the last, whatever, 15, 20 minutes? Well, I think there are three reasons this is here. I've alluded to them already, but I want us to see them together. And the first is that it's to show us that God is just, that this is an act of justice. And we see this clearly in the passage, particularly there in verses 5 to 7. And you'll see there, if you look down at those verses, almost in the middle of this awful scene, there's this like conversation going on between an angel and those surrounding the altar. But do you see what they say? Let me, let me read them. You are just in these judgments. You, are, you who are and who were the Holy One because you have so judged. For they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And in this is what the altar, those around the altar say. Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. So we look at this, uh, you may be sitting here thinking, well, of course the angels of the Lord think God was just. Of course they think that what he was doing was right. But I want us to think about how, why this is important. We need to know that this is important. And we need to think why God is just. I think this verse gives us, or these verses give us three reasons to prove the justice of God. And the first you'll see there is that God is holy. Do you see that there in verse 5? You who are and who were the holy one. And you'll know, you'll know for even from this morning we, we talked about the holiness of God. And the holiness of God or God being holy means that he cannot exist with that which is unholy. The two are, are, are completely incompatible. They, they cannot exist. And so for God to remain holy, he must destroy all that is unholy. The second reason these verses give us is that God judges evil because evil deserves to be judged. And I think we recognize this ourselves, don't we? We think of some of the greatest atrocities in, in human history. And we want justice. In fact, we expect justice to be served. It's, it's the mark of an advanced society, isn't that right? Well, actually, what's more is we want God to be just. And that is what God is doing. And he says on that last day, he will judge us as we deserve. Verse 6 tells us that tells us the crime of these people. It says that they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets. And then you'll see there, uh, Leviticus 17, 10 to 12, this is what this verse alludes to. It says that, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And that's because in Leviticus 17, the law tells us that it is forbidden to drink the blood. And if you drink the blood of someone else, you deserve to die. 
And so God here is giving them over to their sin. And of course that means they will face the wrath and the judgment for their sin. But also the third reason is that God has warned us. God has warned us that he is going to punish us. The other verse I have up there in the screen which you cannot see comes from Leviticus 26. Listen to these words of God from Leviticus 26. If in spite of all of this, all of the law, you still do not listen to me, but continue to be hostile towards me, then in my anger I will be hostile towards you. And I myself will punish you for your sins seven times over. And isn't that what's happening here? Seven times over, God says? And how many times have we read, even in our verses today, that despite God's warnings and God's wrath, those who oppose him do not repent? Like I said, we we see it even in our passage. Have a look down at the end of verse 9, for instance. See what happens after the fourth angel pours out the, the fourth bowl of wrath? And it tells us in verse 9 that they were seared by the intense heat and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues. But they refused to repent and glorify him. What about verse 11? Med gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. But they refused to repent of what they had done. And verse 21. From the sky, huge hailstones of about a hundred pounds each fell upon men. And they cursed God on account of the plague of heal, because the plague was so terrible. You see, there is no excuse. God is just, he is holy. We deserve to be judged because we have broken his law. And God, even in these days, is gracious towards us and warns us and warns us and warns us. But in the end, if we do not repent, then God is going to judge us and we're going to face his wrath. This is an act of justice, I think. I think it is, it is what we want, it's what the world wants, it's what the world needs. And God is being true to his character and we cannot blame him for it. As well as being an act of justice, it is an act of assurance. And to see this, we need to go back uh, to the very start of chapter 8. And if you would turn back with me a couple of pages to the very start of chapter 8. If you were here, this is a number of weeks ago, we looked at this passage. I believe Alistair looked at it. But if you look at verse 4 of chapter 8, you will see that it tells us the smoke of the incense together with the prayers of the saints went up before God from the angel's hands. I don't expect you to remember what that verse is about. It would be brilliant if you did, but um, what's going on here? It tells us that, and and Alistair encouraged us to pray that evening because it tells us that as as the church we are to pray to God for his intervention in the world. And what we have here in Revelation 15 and 16 is these prayers being answered. And that's why in verse 15 we have the reminder of Jesus' words. Do you see what he says here? It sticks out, doesn't it? These words, if you know your, your Bibles well, they, they kind of come out, stick out like a light in the darkness. 
Behold, I come like a thief. And blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him, so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. These verse tells us that in the midst of this day, in the midst of the day that is to come, we are to keep our eyes open and to be ready for the rescue of Jesus. And it's to remind us that even though we are worthy of God's wrath, and as we, we read this, we think about our sin and we realize that we are worthy of God's wrath, it is to remind us that because we have been marked with the Lamb, we will be safe from all that is going on around us. And this is why this is an act of assurance, because we know that sin is rife in this world. We know that Satan, for a while, is, is, is rampaging around, roaring around like a lion, waiting for someone to devour. And we've talked about it lots and lots, how Revelation is about assurance. This passage is no different. Rather than talk about assurance, I want us to talk about one other thing. And it comes... What comes to mind is is these words from Luke chapter 10. It's the words of Jesus. And um, I was reading this the other evening in my quiet times. And and in Luke chapter 10, um, Jesus has just sent out 72 of his disciples to do his work. And in their return, you maybe know the passage, in their return, he he praises them. He says, Lord, we were able to do all this wonderful thing. But this is what Jesus says in their return. He turns to the 72 and he replies to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. And this is the important thing I want us to hear. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And you see, this is where I want us to caveat this day. If you're a Christian here this evening... Because as we consider this devastating and final day, it would be easy for us to rejoice in the destruction of evil. But Jesus says, be careful. Rejoice that the lamb is coming like a thief. And stay awake. Keep your clothes with you. Watch out for him. You see, our assurance does not come from the fact that we win. Or that those that persecute us will be judged. Our assurance comes from the Lamb. The Lamb who has written our names down in his book. Finally, we need to see one more remark about this day. And it is an act of warning. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles with me to one other passage. And it's all the way back in the book of Zephaniah. And I ask you to do this. Book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah is a hard book to find if you're with paper copies, so go to Matthew and just work back a few pages and you'll find it. Uh, Be careful not to stop in Zechariah, but go to the book of Zephaniah, chapter 1. Zephaniah, chapter 1, verse 14. It's a very small book, so don't worry if you miss it. Okay. Now, my Bible has this extra heading that describes these verses as the great day of the Lord. So if you have that, you'll know where I'm going. 
Listen to these words, okay? And with these, we'll, we'll, we'll draw to a close. This is the warning of this passage. The great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. Listen, the cry on the day of the Lord will be bitter, the shouting of the warrior there. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. I will bring distress in the people and they will walk like blind men because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like filth. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole world will be consumed, for he will make a sudden end of all who live in the earth. Gather together. Gather together, O shameful nation, before the appointed time arrives and that day sweeps on like chaff. Before the fierce anger of the Lord comes upon you. Before the day of the Lord's wrath comes upon you. Seek the Lord. All you humble of the land. You who do what he commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. And perhaps you will be sheltered. On the day of the Lord's anger. The day of the Lord has not come yet, has it? But as Zephaniah say, it is near. Near and coming quickly. I encourage you as we read this passage here in, in Revelation 15 and 16 to pay heed to the warning that I think it screams to us. And that is get ready. And as Zephaniah says, not to trust in silver or gold or the things in this world to trust in Christ. There's an illustration I used before in this congregation and I'm going to use it again because it illustrates exactly what Christ does for us in the day of wrath. It's an illustration that takes us to the Scottish Highlands and it's the story of a man who was walking with his son in the Highlands of Scotland. And you maybe can't imagine it but it had been dry there in the Highlands of Scotland. So dry that the heath had dried out and somehow it had caught fire. Fire was spreading. It was getting closer to the man and his son. And in that moment when he saw the fire come towards him, he grabbed his son and instead of running away from the fire like you might expect, he jumped through the fire and stood in the parched land You see, this is where the fire could not hurt them. The ground had been burned. There was nothing more to burn. And you see, this is a picture of what it means to trust in Jesus. Because you see, one day the fire of the Lord is going to come. And it's going to consume all that stands before it. And you have an option. You can either stand and refuse to repent... Stand and take your chances with the fire. Or you can stand in the parched land of Jesus Christ. 
We sang about it earlier, didn't we? The Father's wrath was satisfied by Jesus on the cross. All this wrath of God was taken by him for us. And that's why verse 17 says what it says in Revelation 16. It says, it is done. And that is the reminder to us all, the reminder of Jesus Christ on the cross. When he bore the wrath, this wrath of God, he bore the wrath for those who trust in him. You see, this is the warning. This is the warning. It is a final and devastating picture of the day of the Lord. It is coming. But Jesus Christ has given us a way out. He has taken this wrath on himself. And I encourage us as we look at this, if you're a Christian, to take great assurance from that. And if you're not a Christian, to trust in him and know that he will keep you safe from this great and awful day. Let me pray for us as we conclude. Let's pray.